I hope you have your book on your hands. We are on chapter 12, page 118. Today's uh, session is going to be, it's, it's lovely that it's coinciding on the Independence Day because it's a lot about just Sri Yukteswarji's character, his, how he was as an individual, and it'll help us kind of tune into what that freedom looks like outwardly as well. And perhaps we can see in our own lives, oh, okay, you know, I'm not yet there in that particular aspect. And it'll give us little milestones perhaps to set our own rudder of freedom towards. Our guru begins, The silence habitual to Sri Yukteswar was caused by his deep perceptions of the infinite. So the first aspect we're looking at in Sri Yukteswarji's life is that he didn't speak much. And this is something that we all can, you know, at least aspire towards. We have a necessity almost. Sometimes you're in a room and there are people around and there's just this restlessness to make conversation because somehow silence doesn't uh, make many of us very comfortable. But here Sri Yukteswarji, that's what Yogananda starts with, that silence was very habitual to him. And why was it so? Here he says, In shallow men, the fish of little thoughts cause much commotion. But in oceanic minds, the whales of inspiration make hardly a ruffle. And that's what happens. Our thoughts are just so restless because our perceptions are so shallow. They're so superficial that those restless thoughts, those fish in the, in the shallow waters of our mind cause us to constantly have to express ourselves outwardly. Whereas when our own perceptions deepen, even huge inspirations, inspirations that these masters had, even they didn't cause them to kind of pull that energy out of themselves. Even that allowed them to stay very much centered within the self. Because of my guru's unspectacular guise, only a few of his contemporaries recognized him as a superman. Though born a mortal like all others, Master had achieved identity with the ruler of time and space. In his life, I perceived a godlike unity. He had not found any insuperable obstacle to mergence of human with divine. No such barrier exists, I came to understand, save in man's spiritual unadventureness. So, our Guru first says that his Guru, Sri Yukteswarji, there was no difference between what he perceived as human and what he perceived as divine. No, there was no shift that said, okay, now I, you know, like sometimes for us it's like, okay, now I, I need to get into the zone. I have to give a satsang. I have to share something. And it, it takes us a... Uh, a little oh, transition, you know, just like, okay, from my usual self, remember we were talking about in our Sunday satsang, these relationships, so we move from, you know, Shurjo and Narayani, it's like we have to almost move a little bit into being disciples of Yogananda sometimes. Whereas, of course, in anybody who is united with God, 
uh, that shift is just not needed. There is no transition whatsoever. But then Yoganandaji says beyond that, he says, no barrier exists I came to understand. Now he's not talking about Sri Yukteswarji here. He's talking about no barrier exists for any of us. There is no barrier between human and divine, except in man's spiritual unadventurousness. Adventurousness. Now what does spiritual unadventurousness mean? All of us in our own spiritual lives, just like our daily regular lives, fall into little routines. You know, and some of those routines are better and some of the routines aren't. Okay, you know, okay, I, I wake up and I meditate and then I do this and I try and practice my yamas and niyamas. And, I, and even in the beginning, while you know how it is when you come onto the spiritual path, everything's new, everything's fresh and you're hearing new things and it, it's, it's exciting. And you also realize that during those first few months or sometimes just days, depending on how long you can keep that enthusiasm, Insights come, clarity comes, experiences come in our meditation, which after a while tend to perhaps taper off, even though our practices are regular. But that's only because spiritually, we're not constantly trying to essentially be adventurous. We're not constantly trying to see, okay, now what if I do it this way? What if I see it this way? What if I change this aspect of myself? Challenging ourselves. To constantly challenge. That's what the adventure is, right? I mean, we romantically think about adventures would be so lovely to have adventures. But um, many of us who, you know, when life throws adventures at us, we run away. <laughs> We're like, I don't want this. I want my routine. I want my little cup of chai. You know, I want to know that I can handle whatever I can handle. I mean, when we watch movies of this guy, he's set out on the high seas and he doesn't know what's going to happen and the waves start crashing and we're so excited and we're like, I wish I could be on that boat and wouldn't it be fun? Well, <laughs> place yourself on that boat in like three seconds, you'll be like, I want to go Help. back home. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be on the high seas. I don't want to be tossed back and forth. I don't want the storms of life to shatter my little uh, perceptions and delusions. And so it's our own spiritual unadventurousness that creates this barrier. Because all we need to do is say, this is divine. And then I push myself and I say, this is also divine. And I push my sense of self and say, this is also divine. Until everything in my life just becomes divine. And that transition that even Narayani and I have to kind of constantly bring almost as an effort suddenly becomes effortless. Because, well, there is no other reality but God. You're God. I'd like to say I'm God. Everybody's God. This harmonium is God. This book is God. So, you know, it's just like, where's the difference? You know, where, does, where do we draw the line? I remember Swami Kriyananda, at the end of his life, he made this incredible remark that made me think like, wow, that's the kind of consciousness that one who has challenged himself, who has raised the bar spiritually constantly, uh, receives and achieves. He said, I don't know anymore where Yogananda ends and Kriyananda begins. Meaning like, Towards the end of his life, he was already becoming even aware 
where his consciousness really belonged. You know, which it was nothing to do with assuming the personality of Swami Kriyananda, but he was merging. He was becoming aware of who he truly was. One with the divine, and that's, that, that's what he was always was. But at the end, somehow, this awareness comes to each one of us who have dedicated a life completely to the search for God and to the uniting of our soul with the divine. Anyway, I, was, um, I could see in Swami Kriyananda how this particular concept and knowledge became so vivid and manifested within himself. And he never assumed that he was one with the divine. It was only towards the very, very, very end of his life where, where he kind of became comfortable even in sharing that realization that he had and that unity he was experiencing within himself. I was always thrilled at the touch of Sri Yukteswar's holy feet. Yogis teach that a disciple is spiritually magnetized by reverent contact with a master. A subtle current is generated, and the devotee's undesirable habit mechanisms in the brain are often cauterized. The groove of his worldly tendencies beneficially disturbed. Momentarily, at least, he may find the secret veils of Maya lifting and glimpse the reality of bliss. My whole body responded with a liberating glow whenever I knelt in the Indian fashion before my guru. Now here he's throwing that little very, um, again, sometimes uh, <laughs> automatic response. Uh, I remember as a young child, we used to live in boarding school, my brother and I, and every time we came home, it's, it's of course an Indian tradition, it's part of our samskars to kind of kneel before our parents. You know, every time I would meet my mother or my father after returning from school, and every time I'd return back to school, or when we were going to college, it was always this habit of touching their feet. But it's like I never really even knew what I'm doing. I know it was reverential. I know it was, well, I wouldn't say expected, but it just somehow was part of who we were traditionally. But it was the first time when I came to Ananda uh, because I didn't have a spiritual upbringing and I got to touch the feet of Swami Kriyananda that again these words became more real that you realize what's actually happening and the concept here is the very fact of touching their feet especially is this affirmation of your teacher of the guru saying that you're the lowest you know part of you which is even lower than your Muladhar Chakra, the very absolute lowest state of your physical body is higher than 
what I am aspiring for. And even if I can just get just that little bit from it, I will be spiritually uplifted in that moment. And what uh, Yogananda here is explaining is actually on a very scientific level as well, that the currents that pass through the body of a saint, or in fact, in many ways, um, after I came to Ananda, and I even would do this with my parents, now with a completely different understanding, even that was very different. Because what's, what it says here especially is, yogis teach that a disciple is spiritually magnetized by reverent contact with the master. And that word reverent is actually very important. Because we'd see, and I have seen this, and perhaps Narayani too, in my three and a half years of being, you know, of Swamiji being in his physical body when I was at Ananda as well, I perhaps I would have touched his feet several times. And not each time was as thrilling, not each time did something to me. And it was really about our ability to receive. And sometimes when I touch my parents' feet, after realizing this exchange that takes place, I was able to receive far more from them than otherwise I have perhaps received in many ways throughout my entire lifetime. And so that aspect of the disciples part is to be completely open and to be completely aware of the fact that they're receiving something. Sometimes you have people, again, it's just because it's such a habitual or it's, it's almost like everyone's doing it. So, you know, maybe I have to do it and you come and kind of see people, they come and just like, it's like, you know, <laughs> I'm just going to just about put my hand there and I'm going to pull it back just because that's what's seemingly happening in the, in the room. And you can feel, unfortunately, um, sometimes during our classes, people tend to show their reverence and respect in that way as well. And the way Swami Kriyananda always taught us, he said, anytime, don't ever, um, don't ever, what's the word? Uh, missing the right word. It's like, don't push a person away and kind of negate the reverence and the devotion that they're showing. But remember, them, if ever that tends to happen, make sure immediately to place your attention here and ask Yogananda to flow through you to bless whoever you know, displays that particular affection. But having now kind of experienced that enough times, it's interesting how you feel when power actually goes out from you and when it doesn't go out from you. It's a very fascinating, you know, in the beginning, Narayani and I would actually like talk about like, wasn't that like, did you feel that? Like certain people draw something from you and certain people draw nothing, even though our intention is, okay, master, you know, really flow through us, you know, we're just a channel, we're just an instrument, this is your power. But it's not our job that's drawing this power. It is actually the individual and the attitude with which they come, the reverence with which they come, the openness with which they come. And it's actually such an interesting process, which just tells you that as a channel, we're like, it's almost superfluous because it's them that are opening the power of God to flow through. And it's the same for a master. It wasn't Swami Kriyananda's power that we were drawing. It was our ability and openness to Swamiji that gave his power to us. Especially what we transfer, not only what we receive, but what we are transferring to the other person. I remember when I was Swami Kriyananda's personal assistant, 
I, I had to um, kind of touch him several times throughout the day just because he became so fragile physically that he needed help to stand up, he needed help to put his shoes, sometimes to help him to get dressed. So there was a lot of physical touch that it was required. It was like the job of a nurse. And I remember in those three years and a half, I was so conscious that every touch, I, I was touching to that physical form. Never lose that sense of reverence and respect because I knew he would take whatever little karma, whatever little negativity, whatever energy of energy was flowing through me would affect him. So the awareness in which we touch people, we touch things, we interact with the world with our hands. Our hands are our most powerful magnets to give and to receive. So as much as we start realizing that everything that we do with our hands have an effect in our environment and the people we are interacting with, don't underestimate that putting water in a glass you know, to give to somebody else it's not important. There is a consciousness, there is an energy that is flowing through your hands and that will have a repercussion in the person that you offer that action. When we went, Shurjo and I, to visit a saint a few years ago, he had a little you know, group of disciples around him and there were only two, three people he allowed to be given things with their own hands. If, they, if he had at least 100 people, there were only, from those 100 people, only two or three people allowed to offer him food, to help him to put his shawl, to give, them, to give him gifts. I mean, there is a power that happens with that transfer. So, train yourself throughout the day. How do you cook? How do you touch this book? How do you wear your clothes? How do you comb your hair? I mean, everything that we do puts into motion our consciousness. So with whatever consciousness we are touching, we are serving, we are cooking, we are taking care of ourselves, we'll always have an vibrationally impact in that action itself. I'm reminded of a story that we often tell from the life of Christ, where Christ was going through a town, mm -hmm. and of course he had um, you know, built up a reputation as a healer. So wherever he went, you know, like all of us, we want to be healed, we want the easy way out. Somebody else should do the work for us. So, thousands of people would throng with the hope that he would heal them and so not only throng but they'd be touching him as he passed and they would try to if i can only get just a little bit of his energy into me and a, and his disciples who were just 12 of them their job was you know kind of making way allowing him to pass through this throng 
So one such day, again, surrounded by a huge group of people, all of whom are trying to get a piece of him, so to speak, suddenly Christ stops in the middle and says, somebody touched me. And his disciples are a little confused. They're like, uh, everyone's touching you. <laughs> We're like surrounded by a hundred people. And then Christ says, no, somebody touched me. I felt power go from me. And so that's the difference. And then, of course, a very old lady who had just touched the hem of his tunic, of his garment, and had received an instant healing. She comes forth and she says, I touched you. Because she knew. She knew that something had happened. And so she could say, I touched you. And that's the power. Out of those hundred people, only one person touched just the hem of his garment, actually received a transference, and the hundred other people or more received nothing. So know, as Narayani is saying, the role that we play, not just what the masters play, the role we play is in many ways so much more important because the masters can give whatever they want to give. But if we can't receive it, no matter how much they throw at us, it's like an empty, you know, it's like, here's the glass, I'm going to cover it. And then the masters are pouring water when I'm not moving my hand. Nothing's going to go into that glass. And so, you know, pay attention, be aware. Then Sri Yukteswarji here tells to Yogananda, even when Lahiri Mahashaya was silent, or when he conversed on other than strictly religious topics, I discovered that nonetheless he had transmitted to me ineffable knowledge. Again, so the transference of the Guru's wisdom is also taking place on that same level, not necessarily through physical touch, but is only and only dependent on what the disciple is able to receive. Um, again, in, you know, in the presence of Swami Kriyananda, and Swamiji would tell, this, uh, tell us about Paramahansa Yogananda in his life, it didn't matter what he was talking about. Swamiji told, tells us this story where uh, Master was just talking about the ditches on the road and how you know he was telling one disciple that you're going to have to fill those ditches up and those potholes up, we have to make the road smooth. And Swamiji said he was sitting like, out to a corner, just sitting and meditating, just trying to feel Yogananda's consciousness. And he says, even while Yogananda was talking about ditches and potholes, he could feel that he was being filled with so much bliss. And right after Master finished talking about that, he looked at Swamiji and he gave him this little hint of a smile. And Swamiji understood that Master felt that power go out from him. And he realized that only when a disciple receives does what the Guru have, which is infinite consciousness, only then will it come to us. And another fun story from Swamiji's life told to us by uh, a friend of ours, a devotee in our community in Assisi, Jayadev. He was telling us a story as a young, uh, when he had just early on come to Ananda, he's from Germany. And Swami Kriyananda was traveling in Germany giving lectures, so he was asked to accompany Swamiji. So they were traveling together and one night they were staying at a group, um, somebody's home, because uh, back then that's how they traveled home to home to home from city to city. But these people were just friends of, you know, devotees. They weren't devotees themselves. They weren't interested in spirituality. 
So naturally, Swamiji was over there and he was talking to them about politics and things that, you know, about intellectuals, about literally things about books. And Jayadev, as a young devotee sitting there next to Swamiji, was just thinking in his mind, he's like, I can't believe here I am with Swami Kriyananda, you know, and uh, he could be talking to us about all the wonderful things. He could be talking to us about God. He could be talking to us about deeper states of meditation. And here I'm stuck with him talking about politics and things that are so mundane and so boring. And he just felt like, you know, what's the point of being with him only to receive this worldly kind of topics of conversation. And just as he was thinking that, Swamiji who was sitting just next to him while the, the hosts were busy amongst themselves, just leaned into Jayadev's ear and just started singing. Lord, I am thine, I am thine, I am thine. Lord, I am thine, I am thine. And then he just came back and he started talking once again about politics and things. And that's when Jayadev realized that even while Swamiji was speaking about all these mundane, outward, worldly things, his consciousness was completely attuned to God. And if Jayadev wanted, he could still be taking from him what it is that he needed. But it was own Jayadev's own um, kind of inability to tune into the fact that masters are forever with God, irrespective of what they say, how they look, what they're, you know, just as Yoganandaji says over here, Sri Yukteswarji, nobody recognized him as a superman, save for a very, very few people because he had no pretense. He didn't dress the way most of the other sadhus were. He didn't talk the way the other saints were. And so almost nobody realized that they were in the presence of God. In fact, the more we are evolving spiritually, the less is the need of receiving information through words. Because in fact, in the higher planes, in the astral plane, causal plane, Iranya Loka, all the information is transferred telepathically intuitively, you know, at a thought level, as a feeling. Sometimes information comes as a feeling. And that's where the masters really live. It's, it's really actually a, a big thing for them to relate <laughs> to matter, to relate to, to us, to find those words that you can understand. I mean, they, they don't need those conversations. We need them. So the more we keep refining our ability to understand what life's all about, what the lessons we need to learn through unseen and unheard physical words, the more we will be training ourselves to, to hear that voice from the divine from the guru, especially when he's not physically in the body, mm -hmm. he's going to use other sources and not necessarily words. So um, it's, it's going to be up to each one of us to, to, to train ourselves and to bring us to that place where we don't need Explain me about this, explain me about that, where, where that knowledge comes at a much more intuitive level through your meditations, 
through your sixth sense that we all need to develop uh, and just keep listening with that uh, sensitive ear that where, where words are not necessary. When I was with Swamiji, most of the, of the time in his presence, never ever occurred to me to ask him anything about the path, about meditation, about the law of karma, about you know the difference between Savikalpa and Nirvikalpa Samadhi. I, I just, not even for a moment, even those thoughts were in my mind. I, I knew my real job as a, as a good disciple was to tune into him, into his vibration, into his knowledge at a much more vibrational level to a point that I could many times understand what he needed, what he wanted before even he spoke or be, before even he asked or made, made that request. So, um, yeah, the spiritual path is just <laughs> fascinating. It's not we, what you think it's it is. It's not what we think <laughs> it is, and the information not always come in the way we want or we think we need. Yeah, I'm also reminded of Sister Gyanamata, mm -hmm. who was Master's most advanced woman disciple, and she would consciously, anytime she was in the room and Yoganandaji would enter the room, she would consciously leave the room for two reasons. She said, never do I ever want to feel that your physical body is where you reside because in your consciousness, I can feel you everywhere. So she was training herself never to depend on Yogananda as a physical form. And secondly, she said, never do I want you to give me unnecessary energy <laughs> and attention which you can give to others who need you more. So that's the kind of discipleship that I we think none of us have yet, <laughs> yet even to the point where we're like, wow, wouldn't that be lovely? And then it is said she would be in another room, but she could repeat verbatim as it was happening, the conversation Yogananda was having in this other room with another disciple. She could tell a third disciple exactly word for word in real time what Yogananda-ji was saying. So that's the kind of attunement uh, we need to be, uh, if not yeah. developing ourselves yet, but wanting to develop, Aspire, yeah. get to that point. All right. Yoganandaji continues now. If I entered Sri Yukteswarji's hermitage in a worried or indifferent frame of mind, my attitude imperceptibly changed. A healing calm descended at mere sight of my guru. Never did I find him deluded or intoxicated with greed or emotion or anger or any human attachment. I love the word intoxicated because that's what happens to us when any one of these emotions take over. They essentially have more power over us. Like we were drunk, we don't know what we did and why we did. And this is the true sense of the lack of freedom that each of us have. We're intoxicated by our ego, by greed, by our delusions, by our attachments, by so much that actually governs who we are than what the soul really wants to express through us. 
The darkness of Maya is silently approaching. Let us hie homeward within. With these words at dusk, Master constantly reminded his disciples of their need for Kriya Yoga. A new student occasionally expressed doubts regarding his own worthiness to engage in yoga practice. Forget the past, Sri Yukteswar would console him. The vanished lives of all men are dark with many shames. Human conduct is ever unreliable until anchored in the divine. Everything in the future will improve if you are making a spiritual effort now. And this is where we take these concepts away from intellectual understanding to solidifying it into an actual practice. Here, of course, Sri Yukteswarji is talking about Kriya Yoga specifically, which, as our Guru explained, is the highest form of a sadhana because it works directly at those karmic seeds. It's not from the outside where, okay, let me work this out, let me figure this out, let me see what my lessons are, let me see what my tendencies are. You're dealing with aspects of your nature that you've built over lifetimes that you're not even aware of. But the final point being, we have to have an actual practice because it sounds so good. Oh yeah, I want to, I want to be that attuned and I want to feel this way and I want to be able to receive from the Guru. Well, it's not going to happen here. It's not just going to be like, I want to receive, therefore I will receive. No, this inability to receive is not mental. This inability to receive is that you're so full of your own self that the Guru has no space to come in. You know, it's not that you don't want to receive. We all want to receive. But how does he give you when there is no space? And that's what meditation does. And especially Kriya Yoga, it creates the space. No matter what your past has been, is what Sri Yukteswar. Forget it. All men and all their lives are dark with many shames. And he's including himself in this. He's including saints in this. Saints themselves have gone through all forms of outward incarnations before they perfected their consciousness. But they worked on it every day, not at all ever referring to who they were or what mistakes they made and being bogged down by that, but just where am I going, where am I going, and what am I doing to get where I'm going? Because none of this is going to come if you don't have an actual, serious, daily, consistent practice of cleaning, of cleaning yourself. And meditation, I'd like to say there are other ways, but meditation is the only way if there is an actual seriousness of cleaning, not just that, yeah, I know that I can get angry sometimes, I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah, I know I'm attached to my children, I'm working on it. <laughs> well, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> it has to really, <laughs> I'm not just working on it, it's happening right now inside me every day i let go of things that i'm not even aware of that's what's needed i love this statement because very recently um, i'm kind of you know having certain counseling with certain people and there is always the question of 
my past lifetimes and all the things I did and I did to this person and I received this information. And honestly, I mean, just as Sri Yudeshwar says, even if you have been given that kind of vision of who you were, what you did, forget about that. What really matters is what you, it, it's what you are doing on a regular daily basis. That's creating your own destiny. Yogananda said, give me the worst sinners, the most, the worst delinquents, delinquents? Delinquents, yeah. Delinquents, and just give me the worst. And in seven years, I will make them saints. If, if, if they, they follow, follow my training. <laughs> if <laughs> they the follow my training, yes. But just to say like, no matter even what we have done in this lifetime, just following specific meditation practice, Kriya Yoga. I mean, these are Yogananda's words. In seven years, you can become a saint. I mean, such power has this kind of meditation practices. So who cares who you did, who you were in the past, who you betrayed, I mean. Who betrayed it, you. Who betrayed you. Isn't it more important that you are being given another chance, another opportunity to really balance that pain, that debt, or focusing on that, or on the joy of having another great opportunity. And let's not miss this opportunity in this lifetime. Master always had young chelas in the hermitage. Their spiritual and intellectual education was his lifelong interest. Even shortly before he passed on, he accepted for training two six-year-old boys and a youth of 16. Sri Yukteswarji was almost 90 at that time. And even at the age of 90, he accepted to six-year-olds. So in Sri Yukteswarji's ashram, almost everyone, all the chelas were young in their teenage years. He directed their minds and lives with that careful discipline in which the word disciple is etymologically rooted. So here he's saying the word disciple, which you know for us is comes more from a devotional perspective, which is absolutely true and essential. But he says etymologically, it comes from the word discipline, which means that you are willing to accept somebody's discipline. And that's the key part here. When his mood was silent, Sri Yukteswarji's, and withdrawn, no one ventured to speak. And when his laugh rang jovially, children looked upon him as their own. And so he's talking again over here how the disciples responded to Sri Yukteswarji, how aware they were of the states that he was expressing, and they were able to support and cooperate with those states as well. Master seldom asked others to render him a personal service, nor would he accept help from a student unless the willingness was sincere. My guru quietly washed his own clothes if the disciples overlooked that privileged task. 
Sri Yukteswar wore the traditional ochre-colored Swami robes. And in accordance to yogi custom, his laceless shoes were of tiger or deer skin. That's lovely to visualize him wearing tiger skin and deer skin around his feet. And we've seen Sri Yukteswar ji wearing those ochre robes and so majestic he looks. But, think, but then I am thinking about here him sitting in a corner washing his own clothes. Can you imagine the, the greatness of a saint is actually expressed far more in that moment than in all the you know, wonderful lectures that he could expound. Because that's the reality. Where are we moment by moment in our consciousness? Sri Yukteswarji could easily have said, Oh, have you washed my clothes? Has, who's done this? Who's bringing my food? Who's doing that for me? But only and until that desire to do seva upon him was really sincere and the disciples understood, and this is the word here, the privilege of serving God, then he would accept it. Otherwise, it made no difference to him whatsoever. And it shows his attitude towards life, a simple task as washing his own clothes, just like, you know, with that dignity, with that, like, everything, there is no separation of what we do, how we live, everything is a flow of the divine. Even in washing my own clothes, there is that divine consciousness that, that it doesn't affect me anymore, whatever activity. There is no more privileged activity or less. Everything is exactly the same. I mean, I love this image of Sri Yuteshwar just washing him, his clothes and that activity doesn't change who he really was. I mean, it's just fascinating and just, Again. I love Sri Yuteshwar just because he's so <laughs> real. real and in the world. You know, you never see him even for a moment removed from what life asks of him in each moment. He just doesn't choose what he wants to do versus what he doesn't. He's just, whatever life brings, he cooperates with it. He doesn't, you know, even for a moment. It's just so beautiful, that consciousness of a self-realized master living in the world with us, doing exactly the same things that we do daily. I mean, just, I love that. There is a well-known Zen saying, perhaps you've heard it, talks about, it says, before enlightenment, the man chops wood, makes a fire, cooks his food. And after enlightenment, the man chops wood, makes a fire, cooks his food. <laughs> Which means that the outward gestures don't change. It's only your consciousness that shifts. Whereas we're so used to outward, oh, now this person's famous, so everything about him has changed. Oh, now this person's, you know, different. He suddenly has got more money, so now everything about him has changed. But for a self-realized master, nothing changes except that everything is God. And then whatever you do, as Narayani said, is just God. 
nothing's different chopping wood is not different giving a lecture is not different freeing a disciple from his karma is not different going to the grocery store and buying alu is not different and that's when you start to really become spiritual until that realization and that reality doesn't become a daily experience for you you're constantly going to divide between world and god mundane and spiritual and so we've got to break those barriers down and the simple example of shri yukteswarji's life should be an inspiration for us wow tomorrow when i put the clothes into the washing machine can i do feel that i'm doing god's work we only have 5 minutes let's just see if we can get through one more paragraph So we're getting so many different aspects of Sri Yukteswar ji here and what he thought how he felt how he related to himself and others here it's about his body and about health master was cautious of his body while withholding solicitous attachment the infinite he pointed out properly manifests through physical and mental soundness he discountenanced however any extremes His health was excellent and I never saw him unwell. He permitted students to consult doctors if it seemed advisable. He said, "Physicians must carry on their work of healing through God's laws applied to matter." However, wisdom is the greatest cleanser. And so he says here, "The body is a treacherous friend." give it its due and no more pain and pleasure are transitory endure all dualities with calmness while trying at the same time to remove their hold imagination i love this line imagination is the door through which disease as well as healing enters disbelieve in the reality of sickness even when you are ill and the unrecognized visitor will flee just a very simple small little glimpse into the concept of health and illness and disease you can see again over here we went through i remember if i mean I, if you remember the entire chapter of tiger swami and how beautifully he talks about physical strength was not what allowed him to defeat those gruesome tigers but he said there were many men physically stronger than him who were incapable because it was the mind that he had trained to make a tiger in his mind into a pussy cat is how he put it so similarly what sri yukteswar ji is talking about here is that wisdom and what is wisdom here is that knowledge that everything that comes to me whether hic sickness whether healing is what i am allowing to enter into me allowing to flow through me and i love the words imagination is what allows opens the doorway to either sickness or to healing if we can really an imagination here isn't of course daydreaming but this clear vivid conscious visualization of who i am in truth am i the sickness or am i perfect health and through that process um we can always heal ourselves yet at the same time 
be practical in your idealism. Don't ever, in the name of spirituality, if especially you haven't developed that true inner strength yet, don't ever dismiss what the world has to offer. Only because, as Sri Yukteswarji says, the physicians, the doctors, are still using God's laws, but in matter, to create healing. So even that's true. Perhaps on a lower level, but still as much valid as any spiritual healing is as well. I, for some reason, I have a very deep connection with Sri Yudhishthira. I just love his ways. I love how direct he is in his approach and how relatable for all of us when Yogananda explains so beautifully how it felt on a daily basis to live with Sri Yudhishthira. And I would like to see that I'm already living in an ashram, which is called life. I'm part of that ashram, and I'm under the training of all these great masters, at least for sure five of them. <laughs> and, and I don't need to go anywhere else because I'm already within the ashram of life. And if I open myself when I'm asked to wash my clothes, when I'm asked to serve this other person, when I'm asked to mop the floor, and if I'm able to daily perform my activities with the right consciousness, I don't need to go anywhere else because I know I'm living these principles under the training of Sri Yuteshwar, Babaji, Lahiri Mahashaya, Paramahansa Yogananda. So start seeing your daily life as a constant training. Your home is your ashram. Your workplace is your ashram. Your family are your guru bhais and your fellow, you know, disciples. fellow disciples and you need to learn to get along with them. So really the spiritual life is as joyful as you want to make it, as adventurous as you want to perceive it. So just make it work for you and make it an adventure worthwhile living.